how was your summer? Got to spend some good time and Craig and I are actually heading away after the service and we've got um, another week. So we're pretty excited because we're grandparents now and it is amazing. <laughs> they say it changes you and yeah, I think it has. Over the summer, I have been reading this book, Devita's Harp. And a good book is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's been something that's been... I mean, I've read this book several times because I think a good book needs rereading. Um, and I was drawn to this story, and as I was thinking about Psalm 19, I felt like God kept drawing me back to the story to tell you something of it because it illustrates some of those key ideas that are in this psalm. Devita Alana Shandal is a young girl who was born to an atheist Jewish mother who had experienced pogroms, you know, the, um, the, the wars and the killings and the attacks that happened in Russia. She had a, a kind of disturbing childhood. Um, she was angry at her father because her father would travel all the time to go and be with the rabbi and leave the family, leave the mother, the grandparents alone. And she was angry at her dad for being distant from them. She didn't understand why he loved the rabbi more than being with the family. And so there was a real broken relationship there. She thought kindly of her grandparents who really had been the ones that had brought her up. So she has an atheist Jewish mother and an atheist Protestant father, which is you know, highly irregular, but they'd been involved in religion, but then they'd walked away because it hadn't made sense to them at all. Her father, um, the story is set in the, in the 40s, 1940s, and there were so many race issues and things that were going on in America. And his parents were very invested in their own lumber business, and they were pretty distant. And he had experienced a horrendous sight where a black man had been attacked and been violated. And he, too, had walked away from faith. And this couple had met, and they turned to a social... Uh, a socialist ideology, and the mother was actually a real expert in Karl Marx. And so family life for DeVita was very much um, communist meetings that would take place in their home, uh, the songs that they would sing about, you know, we're in solidarity and forward we march, uh, and being involved in protests. What this meant is that they were frequently thrown out of rental accommodation because the neighbours didn't like the fact that they would have these meetings and sing these songs. And so they were constantly moving. They were really opposed to the rise of fascism and Franco and what was happening in Spain, and they saw it as an extension of capitalism. So they really lived quite an uneasy life in their New York neighbourhood. But there was a constant in DeVita's life, and it was a door harp 
that hung on the back of the front door, and it sang uh, as someone would come in, and she loved the sound. I think there's a picture of this door harp. Google's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And so it would have this lovely, soothing, kind of tinkly music, but she loved it, and she associated it with home. So though they would have to move from place to place, they would always put this door harp up, and it became the thing that brought some stability and, and some regularity to her life. They had a very dear friend, a poet, a writer, a socialist too, who wrote strange stories, but people were drawn to these. These stories had no endings. They had strange storylines. And Jacob Dor himself had lived a difficult life. He had been gassed during one of the pogroms, and his uh, lungs were really compromised, and he was quite unwell. One day he says to Alana, can I tell you a story? And he told her the story of the little bird. This is a story about a bird, he said. A little bird with black feathers and short wings and a small red spot under each of its large, dark eyes. Are you ready, Ilana DeVita? Here is my story. Can we move the slide on? The bird woke one day from a long, deep sleep and found himself in a strange land. How had he come to this land? From where had he flown? The bird could not remember. It was a beautiful land. Lovely, soft, green hills and leafy trees and dew on the flowers and grass and cooling breezes and the sun always shining but never too hot. And at night, a full moon and a gentle wind. There were animals in the land and they were like animals everywhere peaceful when left alone, hunting and killing only for food. The people of the land lived in small groups that were often at war with one another. Some people were cruel, others were kind. They were like the people that you meet everywhere. But the land itself was like no land that the bird had ever seen or imagined. It seemed enchanted a magical land filled with crystal lakes and fields of wheat and corn with rolling sunlit meadows and deep forests and music. A soft, haunting music could be heard everywhere. It seemed to come from the earth itself, a low, enthralling, twinkling sound like joyous bells far off beyond the blue hills, beyond the green meadows far, far away. Music. The little bird loved the land, but did not like the people. He wondered why the people made war, why they were so cruel. He thought it might be a good idea to try and change them. But how could a little bird do that? One day, as he sat on the branch of a tree in the cool green shade of overhanging leaves, he had an idea. It occurred to him that in some way, 
It might be the music that was the cause of the cruelties he saw. People hurt one another, killed one another, made war with one another, and instead of feeling sorrow and regret, went ahead and was soothed by the music. Perhaps if the music came to a stop, perhaps if there was no music to soothe a person who did someone harm, perhaps then the harm itself might come to feel so intolerable and be brought to an end. And so the bird set out to discover the source of the music. He began to fly back and forth across the land, back and forth, back and forth. Jacob Dor stopped. There was silence. I asked quietly, did the bird find the music? He is still searching. I thought for a moment. I don't like that story. Jacob Dor smiled sadly and sighed. So many people do not like my stories. This bird, of course, was the man. And he was searching for a better way in the world. The story for Alana came to represent her in her life, and it does, I think, for each of us. Jacob Dor comes in and out of the story, and ultimately, because of his ideas, he gets deported from the US and ends in France, and later he dies because of his lung condition. And so this person who was so important to the family was only there for a time, and he went and then he died. Her father, who was a reporter for the Times, ended up going to Spain to fight the fascists and to report on the war. And on the second trip, he died. Her mother was struggling so much with her world. You see, life's anchors had been uprooted. There was only one constant and it was that door harp. The family downstairs were Jewish. And Alana became attracted to the singing and to the festivals and to the family time that she could see happening. And she started to join in with them. Her mum allows her, but she won't go. She has rejected religion herself. But Alana starts getting up and going to the shul, to the synagogue in the mornings. Can we turn the slides through? Here she finds something to belong to, some constant. Finally, when the communists make a pact with Stalin, her mother's world is destroyed because socialism and fascism, which have nothing in common, come together to make this peace pact, and her mother collapses. In the weeks that followed, she seemed to grow old before my eyes. 
her face sagged, and she became strangely dull. Her eyes took on a pinkish inflamed look, and her mouth became hard, ragged line between perpetually pursed lips. An odour began to rise from her, sour, fecal. Her skin became dry and flaky, and her long hair scraggly. She seemed to grow smaller and smaller. She went to work, she prepared our meals, she wrote letters, she worked on Jacob's door book, but all the light was gone from her, and I barely knew who she was. Her mother is taken away for some respite, to go into the country and have time to for her world to realign again. And Alana moves downstairs into the flat with the Jewish family. She loves to participate in all that is going on and to have the regularities and this rise and this fall of life that helped her order her own world. She came to enjoy the community being together, where she could find a place for herself, even as a Jewish woman tucked behind a screen so they couldn't be seen by the man. Her mother returns, and slowly she makes a journey back to her own faith, to the world of Jewish Torah, She worked out that not having these anchors in your life weren't sustainable. Ideologies, they don't really help the world work. And she found solace and centeredness in her Jewish faith. This is what the psalmist is talking about. He makes two key points. That God is creator of all, and we know him through his world, and we know him through the Torah, through the word of God. God's words are certain and secure. Our psalmist begins, our psalm begins, The heavens are telling the glory of God. This is not simply heaven, but the heavens. The psalmist understands God as creator of the entire universe. And all of these creations indeed speak to who God is, and they speak to God himself. They display his handiwork. Day to day, they pour forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. You see, indeed, our world and its organization and its beauty and its difference, the sun and the moon, organize the patterns of our life the things that are separated out into the sea, into the land, provide for 
all of the animals and the insects and the, the fish and the reptiles in the world. God has made this in abundance and glory. And as we look to it, we can see the handiwork of God. We can see something of God patterned in our world. And so they stand for the psalmist as a testament to God, to the balance, to the glory. Their voice goes out through all the earth and to the worlds, the words to the end of the world. And yet, as the psalmist said, there is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Because in them we see something of the mystery of God. Yes, they proclaim who he is. But in themselves, they are not enough. And then he turns to the heavens, and where there's a tent for the sun. And we get this idea of ancient cosmology, these things that they could see. And we see this settledness of the sun, who is both glorious. He's like the bridegroom from his wedding canopy. You know, after they would consummate the wedding. Anyone been a bride? Uh, what is it called? Bridesmaids and bridegroom, no, not the bridegroom, the groomsmen, thank you. They would wait outside the chamber until the man came out and proclaimed, it is done, you know? And so there was the celebration. Um, it's totally not in our culture, and I think it's a good thing. There we go. <laughs> but this verse links this idea of God and his handiwork to what comes. You see, nothing is hidden from the, the sun's heat. You can't hide from it. And so we get this transition, and it links them together. You see, just as the sun dominates the daytime, so the word of God, the Torah, dominates human life. And as the sun can be both a welcome because it gives us warmth, it can be terrifying in its unrelenting heat. And so too, the word of God is both life imparting, but it also scorches, tests, and purifies. But you see, neither are indispensable. There can be no life on the planet without the sun. We cannot live without the sun, and what the psalmist is saying is we cannot live without God. And there can be no true human life without the revealed word of God. He goes on to list the things about the word of God. It is perfect. These are the things we're actually looking for in life. These were the things that Alana's parents hoped to see. You know, this world where things were perfect, where people were fed, where things were right and clear and righteous and true and pure, but it's only found in God. And in the scriptures, we know of the certainty of what is being said. 
you might be at that stage of life where you're, you know, you're, you're running after your career or you're saving for your house or you're, you know, you're heading to these things. But at the end of the day, you know, and these are good things, but at the end of the day when you have them, if that is all you have, it is not enough. Like Alana who ended up seeking out a place of faith because she saw in her parents, they, they didn't have it. They had great ideals, they were working hard, they were going against the flow and they were digging in, but at the end of it, it didn't bring satisfaction and they were just ideologies. Now, we're probably not closet communists, you know? We're probably not closet fascists. But we have things that can become as unhelpful in our life if our center is not secure. In God, we do find what is perfect to revive the soul. This language of perfection is not the Western idea of getting every answer right on your, you know, on your, on your exam. It's this idea of maturity and completion. If you are looking to mature, you are only gonna find it through the word of God. And in you know, full understanding of Jesus Christ and in the power of the spirit, you are not gonna find it somewhere else. These other things, these jobs, all of the things that we might be seeking to do are good, but they cannot be our center. The psalmist is sure. If we're looking for those things that are right, if our heart needs to find rejoicing, we are gonna find it in God. If life looks complex and it's twisting around in such ways that you think, I really don't know what's going, the ways and the decrees of the Lord are sure. This is how we need to live. The fear of the Lord, the awe of God, the otherness, understanding this otherness of God is where you find purity and it endures forever. Much to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold and sweeter than honey and dripping from the honeycomb. These things that people love and that are lavish. You know, a Jewish child, um, when they're learning the Torah, they would have their, I was gonna say it's a tablet, but of course it's not like an iPad tablet, it's like a chalkboardy, slaty thing. What they do when they begin to learn the Torah is they spread it with honey and the children lick it off because they're teaching them that if they want to find the really sweetest things in life, it's going to be through studying the Torah, the word of God. The psalmist then turns to his own frailty. Moreover, by them your servants are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Many of us will have experienced something of this great reward. When we went to Bible college, we had to sell our home and give our dog away and we moved up to Auckland. People thought we were utterly bonkers. We had some friends around last night and they had done a similar thing. Um, we didn't know them at that time. We've connected up later. Um, they've now come back. They've been on the mission field and they experienced the same kind of thing. Now, God's not calling everyone to Bible college, but I'm sure he's calling some of you. Um, <laughs> Um, 
But it's that stepping outside the boat. It's that doing something that you feel God is calling you to, even though on a piece of paper it might not make a hundred bit of sense. We have been rewarded again and again and again. And, and it wasn't back into the life we knew. It was, it was into something much, much richer because God knows the essence of us so much more. So if God is nudging you, step out. You, you will have challenges, but you will have even greater reward. And at the end of the day, this is what fills us. It is this deep-centered faith in God where you can put the next step forward knowing uh, that he has got your back. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. You see, the psalmist has stepped back from this place of God and is starting to go to think about the frailty of humanity. Keep back your servant also from the insolent, from the proud. Do not let that have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock, the foundation and my redeemer, the one who can buy us back from whatever situation we are in. And he will, my rock and my redeemer. So this morning, our challenge is, you know, as we're beginning this new year, indeed we've begun, where are we really centered and how firm is that foundation? You see, the claims of the world are actually pretty hollow. You know, running after certain things which aren't in themselves bad things, you know, a nice house and a reliable car. I remember thinking, God, if I could just have a reliable car, I think I'd, life would be so much easier. And then eventually get the reliable car, and, and it's like, well, yeah, that's good, but th these aren't things that, that satisfy us. When God challenged us to step out and to trust him more, we kind of thought, is this kind of financial suicide, or you know, what are we doing? Actually, we didn't think that at the time, we thought it later. <laughs> but what we came to is we said, we don't wanna to get to 80 and look back and think, I wonder what life would have been like if we'd stepped into what we thought God was saying to us. And that continues to drive us as we look to what God is saying to us. You see, I'm convinced that our true center is only God, and he is enough. God known through Jesus Christ, who walked amongst the least and the last and overturned tables and loved the poor and, and, and lived this life in such a way to show us the heartbeat of God, to show us God himself in the flesh. And of course, who has still got hands and a body in heaven beside the Father and his spirit is present here 
amongst us. You see, ultimately, we believe in God. The Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Words from the Nicene Creed. I want to ask you if you'd stand and you would say the words of the creed as a statement of your intent that this is where we have planted our feet into the centeredness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. After that, we're going to have communion. And I just encourage you to be really open to what the Lord is saying to you, to the challenges he's placing, or what has risen up in your spirit from these words. So would you stand?